fear and be aware of somebody comes in late, they want to help help them to the right. Help them feel you have some distance there. You want to extend your invitation to them. Okay, we're going to tonight study a short passage uh, in the book of Haggai, uh, verses chapter two, verses one through nine. This is the second of four sermons that Haggai gives, and um, and then we'll take about twenty five minutes or so to do that, and then we're going to make a, a real quick switch with regard to the uh, technology up here, and then we'll go right smoothly as possible into Eager's uh, presentation tonight that I know you're really looking forward to. The book of Haggai is composed of four sermons, four sermons given by the prophet over approximately three months, the final two sermons being given on the same day. If you recall from our study of the book of Ezra, when the Jews came back into the land, they were enthusiastic. This group of 50,000 exiles that had had returned uh, came back under the leadership of both Joshua, the priest, and Zerubbabel, the governmental leadership. But they began immediately working on the, the restoration of the altar so they could have appropriate worship. They laid the foundation for the temple, and then they stopped. They undergo some opposition, and they just stopped. And for 16 years, the, the work on the temple doesn't take place. Now, they had plenty enough time and plenty of resources to build their own home and to take care of their own, the things that they wanted to do, but not so much the things that God wanted them to do. So you have the prophet Haggai that is probably an older man. Zechariah is probably a younger man. It is at least implied in the text that Haggai had seen the previous temple. We'll see whether that's like 56 years previously. So it's very probable that Haggai is maybe in his late 70s, 80s, at least. Zechariah, who we'll study next when I get back from India. So Zechariah is most likely a much younger man. But Haggai and Zechariah prophesy fairly close to each other in the, the late dates, uh, the late months of uh, 520 B.C. Haggai is going to give four sermons over a three-month period. The purpose of these four addresses was to motivate the Jewish returnees to the land to finish what they started. You, you started so well, but somehow, as we studied this morning, were most vulnerable to spiritual defeat after a great spiritual victory. They had this great spiritual victory. They come back and they do wonderful things. They want to get it right. They follow God's prescription, as we're reading from in the book of Ezra. But then all of a sudden, opposition comes, and they use that as, a, as an excuse to back off. And then when they backed off, remember we said this morning, anything's possible when we're not walking in fellowship with God. They did something that they probably would have considered impossible. Not only did they back off of building the temple, but then they spent all their time and efforts and energy and resources on building their own home. Now, wouldn't it, it wouldn't have been such a big deal, except for the temple was necessary to have full and complete worship under the Mosaic system. So it was necessary for them to do that. So the group that started off so well under Zerubbabel and Joshua, after opposition, then failed. The first sermon that we studied last week called them to task for misplaced priorities, for misplaced priorities. God will not bless misplaced priorities, but we said as we finished last time, but he will honor reverence and obedience. So the first sermon considered misplaced priorities. Now in the second sermon, there's a phrase here that we're going to see in verse 4 that we already had seen up in verse 13 before, and that's the phrase, I am with you. The Lord is with you. 
And the second sermon, which was given a little over a month after the first sermon, and I would recall, hopefully help you recall this truth, the book of Haggai is probably the most accurately dated book of all the prophets. He, he tells us exactly when he does these things. So the second sermon comes a little over a month after the first sermon. And Haggai calls upon the people to continue building the temple, knowing that the Lord was with them. And, and that while the, the present temple, the one that's being built, may not be the architectural wonder that Solomon's temple was, the glory of the second temple will be greater than the glory of the first temple. It will be greater than the second temple. Now look, and, and we see the, the book dated, the beginning of the second sermon, in verse 1 of chapter 2. On the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, so we see that the second sermon has begun is very precisely dated, a little over a month after the first one. And it's the same audience. Exactly the same audience as the first time. Now, what does he have to say? Well, first, before we get to what he says, let's, let's make at least one note about the date. Because the, this, the date that is mentioned here is the last date of the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles, also known as the Feast of Booths. Using our calendar, it's a different, we're a, I guess a solar day, we're a lunar, there's a lot, a lot of differences. But using our calendar, this would have been approximately October 17th, 520 B.C. This happens in the fall. It's not, it shouldn't be missed that the dedication of Solomon's temple, which occurred 444 years earlier, also occurs during the Feast of Tabernacles. That's according to 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 2. So, so we see a, a parallel of the dates here. It's, it's likely then that that's why the Lord gives Haggai this sermon on this particular day to remind them. It would be like in our, in our calendar, it would be like doing something patriotic on July 4th or doing something spiritual on December 25th. It would, it would recall to mind that particular day. This is also an important month for Israelites. The month of Kishur uh, corresponds roughly to our September, October. And that's when most of the feasts were held in Israel because the harvest had come in. And because, quite frankly, I believe Jewish healing at that time of year. And if you, uh, when, I, when I went to Israel, one thing I noticed is that I understood why they didn't have feasts, <laughs> the feasts in Jerusalem in the first part of June, the last part of May. It's just really hot. It, it, it will wear you out to walk that way, but you get a little later in the year, and that's when most of the feasts were the Feast of Trumpets, the, uh, the Feast of Now, let's look and see what uh, the Lord is, the words the Lord is putting in Haggai's mouth uh, to the people. Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? It did not seem to you like nothing in comparison. So there are three questions that the Lord asks through the prophet. First, who is left among you who saw the temple in its former glory? That was approximately 66 years before this. So if Haggai was alive when the former temple was there, and he has to be 66-plus years old, and if he, if he remembers it, he's got to be 7, 8, 9 years old at least. So Haggai is most likely a man in his 70s, perhaps 80s, by the time that this is written. So three questions. Who is left among you who saw the temple in its former glory? Second, how do you see it now? 
The Lord is actually inviting comparison because the people had already done that. Remember in our study of Ezra, there were the people who wept because of the comparisons between this temple and the former temple. We spent a little time on that, but we also said, I I don't believe that they're weeping in any kind of sinful way. They're weeping because they saw what sin had done to the people, what sin had done to corporate worship in Israel, and they lamented the fact that that had happened. So there were older people that were involved in that, people who had seen the former temple. And so there was this comparison thing going on between what we had before and what we have now. It's been 66 years of woe. And then finally, the third question, does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? I think this is kind of ironic because the Lord is the Lord is saying, okay, you want to compare that temple with this temple. Bring it on. Let's let's go ahead, let's compare the two temples. If that's what you want to do. Now he's not he's not advocating comparison of these two ministries so much. That's clear in other parts of scripture. But he is saying, if you want to compare it, then let's just get it out in the open. Let's just compare the two. Oh, and when he does that, it's going to be obvious. The current temple is not what the former temple was. If I could use modern vocabulary, God would be saying, okay, now get over it. It's not the same. It's not what you had before. Now let's get past that. Let's get this thing built because I am with you. Look at verse 4. But now take courage, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Take courage also, Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and all you people of the land. Take courage, declares the Lord, and work, and work, for I'm with you, says the Lord of hosts. Remember, that's one of the favorite designations for the Lord in Nehemiah 5. Now, this is not the first time this phrase, I'm with you, has come up. In verse 13 that we studied last week in the first sermon, Haggai repeated something. He does it a little different way. But he repeats something. In the first sermon, he says, Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke by the commission of the Lord to the people, saying, I am with you, declares the Lord. Now, this is not speaking simply of omnipresence. You know, the whole Psalm 139, Where can I go to flee from your presence? David is saying, or one famous megaphrase, There's nowhere I can go. You're omnipresent like the trustling prince of David. This is not speaking of omnipresence, although that is a true doctrine that God is everywhere present. When he says, I am with you, the Hebrew Bible, the phrase, I am with you, means that God is with you in a sense of blessing. He's on your side. My hand is with you. Go forward with this work. I'm on your side. You cannot fail if I'm on your side. Paul puts it a little bit differently when he writes his letter to the Romans, but he says almost the same thing. And, and when he says, if God's with you, who can be against you? Remember that? That's a New Testament way of saying the same thing. So he says, listen, don't get so wrapped up in these comparisons. Yes, it's been 66 years. Yes, there are people here that saw the former one, and they now see that this one is nothing, or it's, it's, it's not as much by comparison. It's not the architectural wonder that Solomon's temple was. But I'm with you. What difference does it make? That's essentially what the Lord is saying. He is with them. Comparisons, you know, especially when, when it involves comparisons in ministries, comparisons in churches, can be discouraging when the people are doing the Lord's work. So the people in Haggai's time, and I dare say the people of today, need to be reminded when comparisons start taking place between one ministry and another, between one church and another, that the Lord is with you. Assuming that he is. Assuming you're doing the right thing. 
but it, but it happens so often. You know, I wish we did things like that church there. Why don't we have a building that looks like that church there? Or, you know, the church that I used to go to, I love that one, especially if they're from the same town. The church, and I hear them all. The, the church that I used to go to yeah, does this. Why don't we do that? You know what my question is? Why don't you still go to that church? Well, there was a lot of problems there. Okay, well, thank you very much. Maybe it's because they did that that there was a lot of problems. Now, I jest, but only partially. Nothing personal here. You know, I, I speak with other pastors from around the country from time to time, and this is a problem. It's a big, this, let me just lay the cards out on the table here. It's a big problem because generally speaking, Bible churches, churches that have a one of its priorities is the centrality of teaching the Word of God. They are generally not the largest churches in town. Generally, not. And so, especially in certain parts of the country, some of my friends up in the north northwest part of the country, oh boy, they struggle. Because they're, they're in there, they've been doing it, they've been doing the job 25, 30 years, and a lot of them have 25 or 30 people in their congregation. And a, a church is not spiritual because it's small. Church is not spiritual because it's large. A church is not unspiritual because it's large. A church is not unspiritual because it's small. But I know these men, and they're doing a heck of a job. And then they have people come in and say, "Why aren't we like those people?" You know, what it reminds me. Remember the days of the judges and the early Christians. We want to be like the other nations. We're the kings, and this is not a good thing. It's discouraging to the people who are in that ministry and pouring their heart out. And this, this part is not there. But it's, it is discouraging to many people that are in that ministry and pouring their heart out. And so what Haggai is saying here is the same thing that we need to tell our, our pastor today. And, and again, not me personally, but it's one of the things I speak about at Catholic Temple. The Lord gives you What you need to do is make sure you're doing the right thing. Make sure that first. And then do it. As, as, the, as the passage says here, Declare, uh, take courage, declares the Lord, and work. Get it done. Don't be discouraged by comparison. You know, frankly, most of the time, people are well-meaning. But people need to realize that, and, and I want to say this, I have seldom had something like this said where there was real malice that was intended. Sometimes it comes across that way, but I don't think there was true malice intended. Sometimes they just, uh, sometimes it's an honest question, sometimes it's disrespectful, or there's not a lot of thought. And so, therefore, it's always good to think before you judge. It's, always, it's also good to think before you um, speak. I don't do that all the time, but, um, but I just think about it. The thing is, not all ministries have the same resources. Not all ministries have the same level of giftedness of particular spiritual gifts. Some ministries are, are, are more weighted toward one particular spiritual giftedness and maybe another toward another. But not all, not all churches have the same resources, whether either financial or spiritual gifts. And, and not all churches have the same ministry gifts. And, and those kind of things would dictate the way a church ends up operating. And ministry priorities, if a, if a church has good leadership, Ministry priorities dictate the way that things end up happening in that particular church. Just like doctrine, the right doctrine that you hold will, will end up dictating and helping a spiritual person the way we behave. 
church in, in ministry coffee will dictate where you're going to serve God. So just just be careful. Um, you know, sometimes that, that old aphorism holds true. People always think the grass is greener on the other side. And, you know, you see pictures of cows sticking their neck way out, trying to eat grass over here when they get perfectly good in the grass there. Um, just be careful. Sometimes, sometimes, you know, we look at another church and they think, you know, they've got a bull in life, so we must be the best. I'm not getting on that one today. Or they, they do this, so we must need to do that. They have a... They have an extremely dynamic youth group, so that must be the secret to their success. By the way, we have a very dynamic youth group. And so what I have had, unfortunately, I, I go back to the personal, I'm not speaking of myself, but I have had this happen. That people say, well, I, you know, that, that looks so attractive to me that I'm going to go chase that. And then they chase it, and then they realize once they get there, they like that car, but the other 86 other cars wasn't really what they wanted. Then they're embarrassed. They can't come back to the church that they came to. This wouldn't be a problem in early ministry. It wouldn't be a problem in certain parts of the country, but it's a problem here because we have so many different nursery programs. So I, I would just say, whatever church you choose to attend and to become a member and to support, just know that because in one sense, something is coming that, that you just cannot deal with anymore. Then feel free to move on. There'll be no hard feelings between me or anybody else, but it's a fundamental difference. So don't 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 uh, church hop based on church attendance. It's going to hurt you. It's not going to hurt me because I get over it. Church it's going to hurt you because you're going to hop to that, and you're never going to be really comfortable in anything if all you're looking at is the church. I was talking to a good friend just a little while ago, and he pointed out to me that no church is perfect, and no ministry. Hold on to your seat. No pastor's perfect. I knew that was going to shock Peter, but it is true. No pastor is perfect. So there's a, there you go. Except for maybe in Ukraine. There's a perfect pastor in Ukraine. We'll hear from him in just a moment. But since I just have about eight minutes left, I need to go ahead and, and stress this point again. This, this, is, this is the point of this passage. Haggai's saying, continue on with this. Don't get hung up with the comparison. Don't get hung up with people being negative and trying to discourage you by saying, this is smaller than the one we had before. Yes, it is. Let's get over it and let's get to work and build it. And good things are going to happen. The Lord is with you, he says. Don't be afraid. Don't lack faith. The Lord is with you. In verse 5, as for the promise which I made when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Don't fear. You know, if the Lord's in it, there's nothing to be afraid of. The Lord is in the Exodus, wasn't he? So it's like, afraid? Were they afraid in the Exodus? You bet. They absolutely were. You know, why did you lead us out into the desert just to kill us? You know, weren't there enough graves in Egypt and all that stuff? Remember that? So there's fear. See, it's just kind of one of those natural hazards that we like to face. But now, you have a, a very parallel situation. God had led them out of, in a miraculous way from Egypt into the land where there was a lot of unbelief. And now he's leading them back and back to the place where they have to obey the Lord. I need you, I'm in this, and you need not be afraid. Keep still what you know to be the right thing. In verse 6, 
Lord, this is interesting. For thus says the Lord of hosts, hosts, once more in a little while I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and all flowing with water. This is quoting from the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verse 26. This is, this is a, a monumentous event that's going to happen. There is going to be a time in the future. Now, this is where with the prophets, the minor prophets, we've got to distinguish between something that's going to happen in Haggai's day or even over the next couple of years and something that's going to happen in the more distant future. There may be near fulfillments of some of these prophecies, but there's going to be an ultimate fulfillment of the prophecies. And this idea of shaking the nations is going to be fulfilled ultimately in the future. Now, verse 7, verse 7 contains a couple of exegetical difficulties. And for the sake of time, what I've done is I've put three different translations on the board of this same passage, uh, along with uh, the operative words in different colors, red, yellow, and green. Now, verse 7 in the New American Standard reads this way. And I will shake all the nations, and they will come with the wealth of all nations, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. Now, the New King James, and I believe Old King James did too, capitalized this a little different way. Uh, they, uh, the New King James reads, And they shall come to the desire of all nations. Making this a, a reference to the Messiah. That's why the New King James capitalizes these, these two words. They shall come to the desire of all nations. New International Version. Some of many of you have that in your laps right now. And the desire of all nations will come. Now, this is one of those times, actually one of those rare times, when the New International Version probably has the most literal of all at least in my view. NIV probably has the most literal. That's pretty close to what it says. And the desired of all nations will come. The American Standard treats it a little bit differently. And in any, interpret, in any translation, anyone who's doing translation will readily admit that there is at least some aspect of interpretation in translation. You can't get around it. In fact, when I was doing classroom group studies at University of Houston, Professor Dora Parks, I don't know if she's still living now, but uh, I hope she is. At, at the time, she was at Lamar Master School. She has not stayed in Christian world at all. And, and I certainly hope there's a point in time when, when Dora changes her mind. But I remember being counted off on an exam one time because I give it, they gave a fairly woodenly literal translation. And so the point is to get the thought from one language into another language in the best possible way. Sometimes a really woodenly literal translation is the best way to do it, and sometimes it's not. It's, it's one thought to another thought. And so, um, here we have the NIV probably coming up with the most literal of the translations, but I really believe that the American Standard really hits the spot with regard to our understanding of what could be going on here. Literally, it does, the word is desire, but New, New, American, New American Standard translates it, well, and I will shake all the nations, and they will come with the wealth of all nations. In other, that, in other words, that which is desired, that's what, that which is desirable, the gold and silver, in other words. I will come with the wealth of all nations, and I will fill this house, this temple, with glory, says the Lord. The adornment of the future temple would be provided by the nation's wealth. The desire of all nations then should probably be understood as the collective noun, desirable things or treasures which correspond with the plural verb here, because it's plural in Hebrew, will come, suggesting that, suggesting that the nations surrounding 
will gladly give up their treasures to adorn the temple in Jerusalem. This rendering, the desire of all nations, as the New King James says, in, in capitalizing it, has usually been understood in, in that view to be a reference to the Messiah. I think there's even a song about that in, in one of the Christmas songs. But, but the best understanding is most likely that this is an impersonal, not personal. I think Bob Shufin in Dallas Theological Seminary makes the best case that this is most likely impersonal rather than personal. Uh, this is not so much one of those references to the Messiah. It is, I think, a reference to the Messianic age, which is to come, but the Messiah himself, probably not. Let me show you why. I think you see it in the very next verse. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, says the Lord. In another place, the text tells us that the Lord owns the cattle on a thousand hills. But if we look at the entirety of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, we learn that everything is God's. Everything is God's. And the wealth of nations belongs to God. And if he wants to take the wealth of nations and adorn a future temple, then that's exactly what it does. It all belongs to him. And if it all belongs to him, then we can put those other two things together and say, Focus on this comparison. You do what I told you to do. And let them do what I told them to do. And you may say, well, they're not doing what you told them to do. First of all, how do you know? And second of all, if they're not, then that's between them and the Lord. You need to focus on what God gave you to do. We need to stand together and look at the Lord. Because since no pastor is perfect, since no ministry is perfect, if we're going to have any kind of coherence in life, we both have to be focused on a perfect audience. That's the only thing that's going to get us through. Because, my friends, we all have flaws. I've admitted mine. Yeah, you have some too. I'm just looking all over the audience. So we need to get past that and focus on the one who is perfect. Then we can get through this day into the next. But if we start focusing either on ourselves or on what some other ministry does or has and we don't have and lament that, we're toast. And we should be toast. In verse 9, the last sentence of this sermon, and this is where we'll end tonight, the latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I shall repeat the things of the Lord of hosts. Now this is one of those places where the fulfillment of, of the last part of what Haggai says in verse 1 has got to be because none of this has ever happened. It hasn't happened in the way that it said. But there will be a time when a more distant fulfillment in the millennial kingdom will take place. And I think lasting peace, lasting peace is only going to take place in this time. So the Lord used the occasion of the Feast of Tabernacles to encourage the builders of the temple in Haggai's day. This feast, when, it's, when it was when it functioned, looked back to the exodus in the same in the same way that the Israelites are being reminded of that in Haggai chapter 4. Remember how he took care of us back there when we were in a foreign land when he brought us back? In the same way, he's going to take care of us when we are in a foreign land and he's going to bring us back. And this message goes back to the exodus, refers to the present temple construction, but anticipating the future millennial 